Hey everybody, this is Zach Olson and thank you for downloading this month's Deep Dive. This episode is sponsored by Pearson Rabbits Insurance. Stephanie Pearson at Pearson Rabbits is my personal disability and life insurance agent. There are three reasons why you need to be buying your personal disability insurance policy while in residency. Reason number one, the most obvious, it protects you in case something happens to you while you are in residency. You get sick or you get injured and you can't do your job. This is the insurance policy that will cover you in case something like that happens. Two, you get resident discounts that will stick with you in many cases even after you graduate and once you're in attending. So you, you graduate residency and now you are got your attending job and maybe you're buying a more expensive policy or something, but that initial discount is going to stick with you even after you graduate as long as you purchase it early. And reason number three and most important is you get your medical underwriting done early. You get to have your the insurance company basically medical underwriting. The insurance company will do this examination of you, dig through your medical history and everything to see if they're willing to insure you. And when you do this early as possible, this is when you have like the fewest diagnoses on your chart. This is while you're the youngest, you have the fewest dangerous hobbies and all of that kind of stuff. You get your medical underwriting done when you're young, it makes for a cheaper policy. It also makes for the strongest policy because let's say you have, you know, you're at the eye doctor and they document some weird thing related to your eyes. Well, now the insurance company who's, who's not doctors, they're going to see that and be like, oh, wow, there's some weird eye thing. Okay, we're just going to exclude everything related to eyes in the future. And so now your policy is much weaker, even if it was some BS, you know, thing that just got put on your chart. So that's why you want to get this done early. Go to www.pearsonrabbits.com, fill out the contact form, get all your questions answered. Now, on to our deep dive. I'm not a huge mnemonic person, but we're going to be going through a mnemonic in this episode. It's the DOPES mnemonic, D-O-P-E-S. It's the mnemonic that helps you remember kind of the differential diagnosis and how to think through an alarming ventilator which is one of the the issues that Mike had to deal with on the previous case. So real quick, D, displacement, O, obstruction, P, pneumothorax, E, equipment, S stands for stacking. And again, I'm not a mnemonic person, but this is one that you will hear. Let's go through each of these, though, so you can kind of understand not like the real world, how this actually kind of applies, not in an academic kind of theoretical sense, but actually kind of things that I've seen as an attending where this plays out. So D, displacement. You hear that and you're like, okay, alarming vent, displacement. So like the tube came out, right? Now that, does that happen? Sure, that can happen. I think much more common is not the tube falling out, but the tube being displaced down too deep into the right main stem. That's much, much more common. And if you think about that, if you if your endotracheal tube or whatever is in the, the right main stem bronchus, you're taking all of that minute ventilation and you're doing it through only one lung instead of two lungs. You start getting pressure alarms and all sorts of complications from this. That right main stem intubation is really the most common displacement that you're going to see. Can the tube come out? Certainly. So scenarios where this would happen, you wouldn't think this could happen because you intubate people, you see the, the tube go through the cords and you blow up the balloon somewhere past the cords and it's in there nice and deep and you have the endotracheal tube secured or whatever. You're like, how could the tube ever fall out? Well, it, it, it can. I would say the most common is on a difficult airway 
one or in a patient with like tracheal stenosis or some issue like that. Sometimes that tube isn't as deep as you think it is. And this, this can just happen. Sometimes like the tube's soft, so it can kind of bend in the oropharynx and things like that. And you might think you're kind of at 24 centimeters or something, and you might not be um, just kind of the way things moved around in the mouth. Not all tubes are easy. You'd be surprised. I've definitely had some chest x-rays where you think that tube is perfectly placed and the tip of it is like, you know, it's not like off the carina. It's like up in the neck somewhere. And you're like, oh, oh my God, <laughs> like there's the endotracheal tubes really high. No one move anything or the tube's going to fall out, you know? So does the tube fall out when you're moving them from the cot to the CT scan and putting in NGs and everything? Sure, it can happen. But much more common is the right main stem intubation. That's D, displacement. O stands for obstruction. So most common here. So think like, think when you get sick with like bronchitis or something, you're coughing up all of the nasty yellow sputum stuff. Well, now imagine you're a person with bronchiectasis or something with pneumonia and you're just coughing up like chunks of like nastiness, right? Thick, gross, that, that can happen and that will kind of can plug up in the endotracheal tube, especially if it's like a small, you had to use a smaller one for whatever reason. And all of a sudden you're not getting air past that and it's causing high pressure alarms and things like that. For obstruction, the main thing that you're doing is you're having respiratory therapy suction. Make sure they're getting all of that like nasty gunk out. The only other thing that sometimes goes in here is like if you have a patient with bad heart failure and they have that frothy sputum that's just like copiously coming up and if they get intubated, sometimes that's a lot of suctioning too. Um, so that would be obstruction. The third thing I would say here is in a patient who you're not sedating, right? Usually this is really obvious, but they're biting down on the tube or something. That'd be a very common cause of obstruction. But again, that's usually, you know, you can tell what's going on because they're awake and giving you the middle finger, right? And like, <laughs> trying to, and you're like, sedatum, 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 anyways. So that's O. P stands for pneumothorax. So a couple scenarios where this can happen. Asthma and COPD. So think like these COPD patients, they got these big blebs and stuff that you've heard about or seen on, on x-ray, and all of a sudden you're intubating them and you're, you're causing all these increased pressures and you, you pop a bleb or something. And what can happen is, is you all of a sudden go from a sick you know, hypercapnic respiratory failure, hypoxemic respiratory failure, and now you create a pneumothorax or a tension pneumothorax, and those patients can crump really, really quick. That would be one scenario where that can happen. The other one that's even more common, well, they're probably about equally common, but like a trauma patient. So let's say, you know, not all trauma surgeons are necessarily doing e-fast ultrasounds and looking for lung sliding and stuff like that during these resuscitations. A lot of times they're doing, I still see this, a portable chest x-ray on a supine patient, right? And you, it's very easy to miss a small pneumothorax. Now you intubate them, you add that positive pressure, and that small pneumothorax converts to a tension pneumothorax, and the patient can crump on the vent. So pneumo, P stands for pneumothorax. It's something you need to consider. Harder to diagnose than you would think. It's not like you're like, oh, there's no lung sounds over here and there's lung sounds over here. Sometimes it's that obvious and there are certainly scenarios where you can clinically diagnose a, a tension pneumothorax. But I would say uh, frequently you're going to you know, see this on like a portable chest x-ray because you're intubating someone who is in respiratory failure. Okay. In most cases, unless it's an airway intubation. So you're intubating them for respiratory failure and they got pneumonia or, you know, pleural effusion, COPD, asthma, they're not moving any air. So frequently you just don't really hear much anywhere regardless. Um, so if you listen to the lungs, you're like, 
I don't know. I don't really hear much. There's just not moving a lot of air. And that can be anything. That's not necessarily a pneumothorax, which is why it's so important to do a chest X-ray. Now, the caveat to that is if you have a patient that crunk, like they're, they're on the vent and the vent alarms and all of a sudden they're in cardiac arrest and there's like CPR in progress type of a thing. There's only a few things that can cause that. Either something happened and they didn't get oxygen and they went bradyasystolic and like a PEA arrest, or they got like attention pneumothorax would be a big one. And in that scenario, you don't get like a chest x-ray while you're doing chest compressions, right? And so in a patient who's dying and you're just troubleshooting, you can do something called like a finger thoracostomy. I think for the test, the answer would be like, do like a, maybe a needle decompression type of a thing of the chest, but you could something that you'll see attendings do and, and talk about on critical care podcasts and things like that too is a bilateral finger thoracostomy where you just cut and you bluntly dissect and you just stick in your fingers and open. And if there's a tension pneumothorax, you get this immediate rush of air and you'll get ROSC, like they'll you'll you'll save them. And so that's something you'll see. Like if they're if they're an extremist encoding, then you kind of can be a little more aggressive in treating potential pneumothorax, but assuming that they're stable enough that you can get a chest X-ray, you're obviously getting a chest X-ray. E stands for equipment. So this is the most common cause of a vent alarm, okay? The one you see all the time is the patient is maybe not sedated great, and they turn their head or they're in the bed and they move around and they unplug the, t- the endotracheal tube or the BiPAP mask and it comes unhooked from the ventilator, right? Like you see that all the time. I don't know why there's not, I'm sure it's some safety thing, but like it doesn't lock together. Like those two pieces don't lock together, but I see people unplug themselves. I've seen it many, many times. So, you know, that would be like an example of equipment. And really what you want to do is you want to go from either the mask or the endotracheal tube and you're just running that tubing all the way to the machine. You're making sure the the machine's on, you're making sure it's plugged in and things like that. All sorts of stuff can happen. I'll give you an example. The other day I had, we had simultaneous respiratory arrest at the facility I was at. And so my one respiratory therapist Basically, we're like throwing someone on BiPAP and then rushing to the other room to intubate them. And in the process of setting up on BiPAP, the oxygen never got hooked up. So the vent was on and the patient was giving breaths and you heard the pressure and like all the settings were right. But it was alarming when you read the alarm. It said like a low O2 pressure. And I was like, that's weird. I wonder if like the tank was empty. Like did they hook them up to the oxygen tank on the back of the vent? And no, like the oxygen just never got hooked up in the rush of setting everything up because multiple simultaneous respiratory arrests were coming in, right? And so um, that that would be like another example of an equipment thing. You really want to just read what the alarm is. You're going to run your tube, make sure everything's connected, and kind of troubleshoot the equipment. And then S stands for stacking. So this is really common in asthmatics, COPDers. They have obstructive lung disease, right? So you, you inhale, you give them that breath, whatever that tidal volume is that you choose to give them. If there's not enough time for them to exhale completely, then a little bit of that volume remains in their lungs. And then you give them another full breath, okay? And then they exhale, but they don't exhale completely. And you start to stack that kind of residual amount that they're not breathing out. That's called breath stacking. And eventually you start getting high pressure alarms and things like that. And again, it's really common like these COPDers and asthmatics. And it's actually pretty easy to treat. And it's very interesting. So I, sometimes it's really obvious what's going on. And if you just, I don't encourage doing this as like a med student without your attending or something, but I've like literally just unplugged the vent once. And so they just have the endotracheal tube. And I just pressed on their chest. And for like 20 seconds, like air was coming out. It was just like prolonged just so much air came out and then you rehook it up and you adjust the settings um, because they were breath stacking. They had all that air that they couldn't 
breathe out. And again, this happens in asthmatics and COPD. So how do you treat this? You want to get those steroids on board as soon as possible to decrease some of that inflammation. You can run breathing treatments and stuff continuously through the vent. So that helps. You want to use like the biggest, if you're intubating them, like the biggest endotracheal tube possible. You want to have that tube, if it's smaller, nice and suctioned and clear. So you have, you're able to get as much volume out of that tube. But the big thing is adjusting some of the vent settings. And so you can change, you'll hear it uh, called adjusting the, the I to E ratio or the E to I ratio or increase or decrease. I don't know that honestly, I have never actually figured out even as an attending, like, am I increasing the IDE ratio or decreasing the IDE ratio or or something? All, all, what everyone's basically saying is you have them exhale longer and you have the inspiratory phase be shorter. (laughs) So whatever ratio that is, that's you increase or whatever, but that's what you're adjusting. And so you can, you can, uh, decrease the, the inspiratory time and so that that breath goes in really quick and then they have more of a period of time where they can exhale. So that's one thing that you can do and the respiratory therapist can do this. Um, another thing that you can do is, and, and this is something that I feel like respiratory therapy isn't usually very comfortable with, but you can allow the patient to be somewhat hypercapnic. You don't necessarily have to get that minute ventilation to blow off every single extra CO2 that shouldn't be there on the blood gas. You can let that CO2 run a little bit high. And essentially what you do is you decrease the respiratory rate or you decrease the tidal volume in that a lot that makes it so you're not stacking up as much air because you're not putting as much air in over the course of like a minute, right? And so that will decrease the the breast stacking as well while the breathing treatments and steroids kick in. So that's another thing that you can do is adjust again your minute ventilation and your tidal volume and your respiratory rate. Um, but I think the big one for the test would be like change the IE ratio and uh, breathing treatments and steroids and, and that kind of thing. So that is the dopes mnemonic uh, for the, the alarming vent. Again, displacement, especially right main stem intubation. Certainly tubes can come out too, much less common than a right main stem. O is obstruction. Think all those secretions, all that sputum, getting a good suction in there, making sure that they're good and sedated so that they're not biting down on the tube and things like that. P stands for pneumothorax. You want to keep an index of suspicion for this. You want to be getting a chest x-ray if they're stable enough to to tolerate that. Obviously, an extremist, like in a coding patient who is having an alarming vent, um, you're commonly going to be doing like a finger thoracostomy or, or just checking to make sure they don't have a tension pneumothorax. E stands for equipment. Remember, you're running from the BiPAP mask or the endotracheal tube. You're running that that tubing all the way to the vent. You make sure the vent's on. You're reading what the actual alarm is. You're making sure everything's plugged in. All sorts of you know issues here and user error and equipment issues and stuff can happen under equipment. It's the most common cause of an alarm. And then S for stacking, um, making sure that you're giving them enough time to exhale decreasing that minute ventilation as much as possible. And uh, yeah, that's what you do to an alarming vent. Literally in preparation for this episode, I had an alarming vent just the other day. And, um, you know, you patients can die really, really quickly if something's actually going wrong when they're intubated and respiratory failure. You know, a lot of times they're just over-breathing the vent or, you know, it, it's a big nothing, right? You hear the vent alarm, you're like, uh, whatever. It was just like a, a fluky false alarm. But every once in a while, that vent's alarming, and it's like four alarm, right? You're like, I need to restore And you have to do everything real quick or they'll die. So this is a very important topic. And again, you will hear the dopes mnemonic out there. So I hope that's helpful. Um, again, I'm not a huge mnemonic person, but I, I have used this one and do continue to use this one commonly in my practice. Be sure to check out our sponsor, uh, Pearson Rabbits. And until next time, 
keep working hard, keep studying, and be sure to enjoy your shift.